For weeks now, the people of Lebanon have been taking to the streets to demonstrate against the political class that rules them, or rather misrules them. They're protesting corruption, economic mismanagement, and poor government services. But there's something else at work here, something much of the media are not reporting, or at least are reluctant to report. The extent to which Hezbollah, a proxy of the Islamic Republic of Iran, a terrorist organization deeply involved in organized crime in Latin America and elsewhere, now calls the shots in Lebanon. With me to discuss the state of the Levant are Tony Bedran, Lebanon born and bred, and a research fellow here at FDD, and Ruel Markorecht, a former CIA operative, now a senior fellow at FDD. I'm Cliff May, and I'm pleased you're with us on Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are Every no rules. Every U.S. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the Jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the We game. are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. I am fearful for what happens to Turkey now. If you thought that it was dangerous that a coup might have toppled this democracy, think about what this very autocratic man might do. All right, let's begin with a wide aperture. Lebanon is unique, largely as a result of history and geography. The attraction over centuries of its coastline on the eastern Mediterranean, of its forests, of its mountains. Let's just talk briefly, Tony, you start about, about, its, about its early settlers and its later conquerors. So Lebanon, because it's on the eastern Mediterranean, um, it's part of the area known as the Levant. And so this is a very historically unstable area. And Levant and Lebanon, it's from the same root, uh, Levant is um, it's from the French, uh, meaning where the, where the sort of the place of the rising sun. So it's, it's, just, it's a reference to oh, the east. It? Mm -hmm. uh, it's more, uh, it's okay. more um, uh, sort of like, as, as you find with Anatolia, like some, something referencing the east vis-a-vis uh, -vis, vis -vis the west. Uh, but... Um, the that area is not uh, an historically it's been an area where neighboring uh, regional powers and centers of power, be they in Egypt, be they in Anatolia, or be they further east in sort of the Persia Mesopotamia complex, and later with the Romans from Europe, would come and do battle or transit in order to do battle elsewhere. Mm. So the area itself is um, fragmented and has been fragmented, has never been the center of power. And uh, it's poorly, it's not very defensible because of its uh, geographical features. So uh, Lebanon, because of its mountainous nature, was also able to attract a multitude of different um, uh, sects and ethnicities in the region, which, uh, which created its kind of uh, social mosaic. Uh, but it's a fractured mosaic. It's never been, uh, it hasn't really coalesced. And uh, uh, what's interesting today about these protests that we're seeing is that in a unique way in Lebanon's history, you're seeing sort of the sectarian folklore, at least at this stage, sort of take a back seat to uh, a much more cross-sectarian economic 
basis for grievance, sort of a unity among the uh, social unity. So um, this is new, and where it goes uh, is really the big question. Well, what else about the history do we need to know to understand or better perceive what is going on right now? Perhaps the, the most important thing to understand has to do with confessionalism, and that is the principal divisions inside of Lebanon, and, uh, and those are between uh, the Sunni Muslims, the Shia Muslims, the Christians, and the Druze. Those are the primary component parts. You can subdivide them if, if you wish, but that's, that is, oh, I think you can't really talk about Lebanon without talking about that. And I think Lebanon really is, it's been the laboratory for the Middle East uh, because it was on the littoral of the Mediterranean, because there was so much Western intrusion, because of French colonialism, because of the pervasive uh, uh, Western ideas that came through uh, French and large part that uh, Lebanon is one of the most westernized of Middle Eastern societies. That doesn't make it necessarily more peaceful, but uh, certainly one of the most westernized. And it has been, in many ways, one of the central points for spreading Western ideas throughout the entire Middle East. We don't know exactly, I think once upon a time we did, what percentage of the country is Christian. What percentage of the country is Sunni? What percentage Druze? What percentage Shia? I think we knew at one time. We don't now because people don't want to actually find out. Am I, am I wrong about that? They don't want to have a census. I think what we believe is at one point, not that very long ago, um, 1930s maybe, the Christians were a majority. I think they're clearly not anymore. And they're dwindling. They've been emigrating for years to Africa, right. to South America, to the United States, to Australia, all right. over. Birth rate's low. Hmm? And the birth rate's low as well, plus the, the emigration from the country. So we don't really know, and probably people we, don't want to know. We, not officially, we don't know, but we, we have a fairly good idea of, of uh, where uh, sort of the percentages are. And at best, uh, I think the Christians, all of them combined, uh, which is important, by the way, to note that this is not how they politically are represented. So the total demographic number does not mean uh, how, the, how the political power is distributed. But... As a total, at best, there may be 30%, at yeah. best. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's like the highest estimate, I would say. All right. So then we, we, we get to the, you mentioned the confessional system. I'm not sure people quite understand what that means. Just explain what this is, because this was an experiment in governance for the Middle East, as you say, a laboratory, or as you say, a laboratory. Um, <laughs> and I'm not sure that this experiment, which was people were very hopeful about it i'm not sure we can say it hasn't failed maybe it's maybe it hasn't yet but it looks to me close to having failed well i mean i think in when they had the civil war you could have said it, it failed then but you know it's been and the civil war was just give the years of that uh, i mean when the lebanese civil war started 75, 75, 75 to it started 90 maybe correct yeah. yeah i mean it was a, it was one of the bloodiest engagements and um, modern Middle Eastern history, the kill rate actually by population was quite impressive. And the Civil War was who against whom? Just we were talking it's about four sects. Everybody about everybody. Each sect against the other sect. Oh, uh, against well, all It's intra-sectarian, yeah. and okay. you know, so it it was um, it was uh, you know at that time there were also the Palestinian factor in Lebanon. So you had the Palestinian factor, then you had you know everything in Lebanon because uh, it, it it attracts. It doesn't function an, on its own. It functions in the context of the region, so it attracts bigger regional players. So it attracted the Syrians. It attracted the 
Israelis, uh, and and so on. So it, it was it was a an, kind of a region wide war, and then the Iranians came in, of course, and mm -hmm. uh, and and if eventually they became the the strongest uh, actor in Lebanon. Laboratory. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the, uh, I mean, I think it's important to remember that the when you know this confessional system started officially in the 1920s, that then it was seen actually as being a sort of progressive innovation. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a way to bring in, uh, in to some extent, some type of democratic system within the confessional basis. It was to be a, a productive, peaceful innovation. Uh, I think it's important to note that it, we were really talking about a duopoly at that time. That was, it was really the uh, the Sunni Muslims and the Christians who were the dominant forces in Lebanese society. Maronites Christians. Uh, Maronite Christians, yeah. thank you. Uh, and just to be clear, there are Maronite Christians and there are Greek Orthodox. It's a smaller right. so number. The, yeah. the Maronites look to Rome. The Greek Orthodox uh, are... Yeah, they're part of the Eastern churches, but yeah. the, the predominant political force yeah, in the country. Maronite. Among With the Christians the are, are the Maronites. And the Maronites, again, just a point of history, essentially descended from Phoenicians? No, I no, mean, this is, this is folklore. They're, okay. they're Syriac-speaking uh, Christians yeah. from Syria, and then they end up settling because they're heretical sects, so they end up settling, I see. As, as do a, a lot of and, others. But Syriacs being an indigenous people of the Middle of, East. Of Syria, yeah. And, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, the Syriac language was, at one point, the lingua franca prior to Arabic, and then they... Close were, to Aramaic, Syriac? Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of a, some form of a dialect Got of Aramaic, okay. essentially. Okay. Uh, in... What has happened, uh, certainly, it started before the Civil War, was uh, a reshuffling of the cards, you might say. And the Shia, who are now certainly the most numerous uh, in Lebanon, have been uh, seeking to redress the imbalances, to uh, right their grievances against uh, the Sunni community and the Christians. And I think... Obviously, with the growth of Hezbollah, um, they have been able to attain both political and military power uh, that uh, was in the past uh, simply denied to the Shiites. Right, before we get off the confessional system, I want to drill down on one point that I think is important, not least for what's going on in America. You say that it's uh, was seen as progressive, and I think of progressives in America would as well. Why? Because the idea behind this confessional system is if I'm a Christian, I need a Christian to represent me. I can't be voting for a Lebanese who's Shia. If I'm a Sunni, I can't be voting for a Druze to represent me. I've got to, So you have to guarantee that each of these communities will be represented in this system, no matter what. It's not a matter of I'm going to, you know, I'm 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 going to vote for Barack Obama, and it's, I, yeah, it doesn't I mean, matter to me that in, he's in the Middle East until modern times, and we can debate modern times. I mean, the primary means of identity was religion, so uh, it is not unreasonable. It is historically quite understandable why uh, the various components would have seen themselves. First and foremost, uh, as as a religious group. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it, it's partially also uh, a relic of the late Ottoman system of how the Ottoman Empire administered the various populations under its control, and Lebanon because of its multi-religious uh, nature. So it it had, and because of the interference of outside European powers in the 19th century ends up setting up a system in Mount Lebanon uh, that takes into consideration 
this type of division where also certain sects become attached to uh, outside powers right, and okay. and and it develops and then takes on a life of its own what's interesting about today is that two things uh, what uh, in reference to what Ruel said in one is that one of the biggest defenders of the current system today ironically is Hezbollah <laughs> And secondly, which is, I mean, the irony is because Hezbollah at one point was saying that they wanted to topple the system and erect an Islamic state uh, uh, or integrate Lebanon into a broader Islamic state led by the Iranians. That's number one. The second irony is that uh, uh, the people today in Lebanon, they're calling also for a reshuffling of this whole system. So it, it, we are at a very interesting moment in that it's not falling back on the dynamics of the confessional system. All right. I think it's important that people understand, maybe explain this, Tony, quickly, how it evolved from this confessional system dividing up that suddenly, not suddenly, but over time, Hezbollah, again, a proxy of the Islamic Republic of Iran, comes to be the major player, the major factor within all this. And an interesting thing that I noticed in reading about this and writing a, a column about this is how many of the journalists reporting on what's going on in Lebanon don't want to acknowledge that or even report it. So you had an economist piece about all this, never mentioned the word Hezbollah. You had a long piece in the New York Times. Very bottom Hezbollah is mentioned as a leading Shia right. political party. Right. The fact that they have a that, that it's a political party with a militia stronger than the Lebanese armed forces, they left out of these pieces entirely. Right. Right. And the way that Hezbollah is really in control, they talk about the fossilized political elite, but that Hezbollah is clearly on the throne, so to speak. Sure. This the media have not wanted to report for the most part. So tell us a little bit about how, how Hezbollah took control and what that means. The, the growth to what we see with Hezbollah today uh, really starts to take place um, at the end of the late uh, of the 80s and the and the specifically throughout the 90s, and it's the result of an of an uh, understanding between regional allies, the Assad regime in Syria and the Iranians, and they agree after the end of the civil war that Hezbollah will retain its uh, uh, military force and its weapons, even though the other militias of the war were forced to disarm. Hezbollah gets to retain these weapons in order to continue fighting Israel in southern Lebanon. and uh, Which it's not actually doing. Uh, well, and, and not now, at, now, at this yeah, point yeah. now, it's, it's a, uh, the game has evolved into yeah. one of we'll deterrence talk. and missile we'll talk and so on and so forth. Too, but yeah. at the time, in, the, in, the, uh, in 1990, Israel was still, it, it had another 10 years before it withdrew. Yeah. So uh, Hezbollah nice. was, was then left to, to continue its armed uh, status in, in Lebanon. But uh, the Iranians agreed that the Syrians would run the uh, sort of the day-to-day, -day, everyday uh, politics of the country with the understanding that they would continue to preserve mm -hmm. Hezbollah's autonomy and, and, and maneuverability. Mm -hmm. Once the uh, uh, um, Syrians got kicked out of Lebanon in 2005, uh, Hezbollah basically inherit, which by that time had become a major power in the country, inherits that system to itself, and it becomes sort of the uh, conductor of everyday Lebanese politics. Also, it, because of its what you referenced in the introduction, the illegal uh, criminal activities that they do abroad, and this is very relevant to the current crisis, actually, that's how uh, they become extremely important to Lebanon's economy because they become a source of uh, 
uh, money in, that comes into the country and flows into through, through its banking system uh, and, and so on and so forth. So they, they rise on a security level, they rise on a political level, and eventually on an economical level as well. I, I think it's also good to note that uh, the Hezbollah has been effective at either shutting down or diluting alternative Shiite visions. Mm -hmm. uh, so the Hezbollah doesn't really have uh, competition. I think once upon a time, uh, that's diminishing certainly now, the Hezbollah did have a certain respect and honor amongst many Lebanese Shiites. And in part, that goes from the Lebanese Shia always being on the short end of the stick. Uh, and that the Hezbollah, for the very first time, Amal to some extent too, were able to give them a sense of pride that they could not simply be run over in the road uh, by the Maronites or the Sunnis, that they now had a place at the table. In fact, they had the largest place. Mm -hmm. um, now I think that has shifted somewhat, and these demonstrations are in part an expression of, I think, a growing distemper amongst the Shia that uh, would be, if they weren't in fear of their life, be considerably more open in their hostility towards Hezbollah. I mean, two things that I want to make sure people understand. People think, as you say, Ruel, that Lebanon is the most westernized of the Arab, largely Muslim countries in the Middle East. Beirut is thought of as a place where you can get a good meal, a good drink, a hotel, entertainment. All true. All true. <laughs> but a lot of Lebanon is very poor. I mean, places in Tripoli and elsewhere where there's barely sewage. Where, I mean, people don't, people don't think of Lebanon that way. But that's part of what's going on now is they are, they, they, the, the economy, I think this is correct, has been mismanaged. Um, public services are bad. Uh, Hezbollah and, and its allies don't really know how to run a modern economy. It's one thing in the Middle Eastern country when you can simply suck wealth from out of the ground and then you have money. But if you can't, and Lebanon really can't, then you have to have a modern economy. And who is who is Hassan Nasrallah, the head of Hezbollah, to understand how that works? And with that in mind, I, uh, elaborate on that if you like, but talk about the head of Hezbollah, Hassan Nasrallah, who he is and how he calls the shots in Lebanon. And the other confessions who have their places in the country, the Christian president, the Sunni prime minister, as I'm reading it, they take their orders from Hezbollah if they want to stay in power. They don't. They are. They are not. Uh, there is not a, a, a productive dynamic among these these various communitarian leaders. Right. So, I mean, Hassan Nasrallah is uh, sort of a product of uh, the civil war in Lebanon, in a way. I mean, so he grows up in the shanty towns of, uh, which is where the Shia, the impoverished Shia at the time, were uh, sort of confined to in, in the outskirts of Beirut and so on. And then he, uh, he's from a southern uh, Lebanese family, and then he he goes to. Uh, to um, to Iraq to study and uh, becomes you know a junior cleric of sorts and then he gets but in Iraq not Iran uh, yeah. first in Iraq and then, then and then okay. ultimately he goes to to Iran because he becomes very early on uh, sucked into this cadre of young Shiites that the Iranians were cultivating since the mid seventies in Lebanon and by seventy eight. Uh, Nasrallah is already part of uh, uh, an important part of that of that crew, uh, and uh, you know he rises through the, Leb the Lebanese War and the rise of Hezbollah in in the eighties, leading and, and it's a meteoric rise really because uh, 
uh, the supreme leader of Iran uh, after the death of uh, Khomeini. Uh, so in 1989, the current supreme leader, uh, Ali Khamenei, uh, takes Hassan Nasrallah directly under his wing. He becomes his protege, he becomes his representative, and that leads to his meteoric rise within the ranks of Hezbollah to assume the leadership at a very young age after the Israelis assassinated his predecessor uh, in, in um, 92. So he, um, at that point, he's a very young uh, guy, and, and, but he is Khamenei's guy. In the party and and uh, Khamenei being the supreme the leader. supreme leader uh, of Iran right. and now he uh, and and gradually he becomes a very charismatic uh, figure in uh, the in the context of uh, Lebanese politics and uh, uh, sort of the uh, anti-Israel uh, uh, front and which was which by the way at that time gripped a much larger audience mm -hmm. in the Arab world than it does today yeah. uh, in in large part due to the fact that for the last decade, Hezbollah has been basically killing Sunni Muslims across the region. In 2006, a war breaks out between Hezbollah and Israel. It doesn't break out. It's, pro it's provoked by Hezbollah, whether they meant to or not. What they did caused the Israelis to say, we have to respond. They killed right. Israelis. Uh, the, the war was bloody, but it lasted only about a month. And you're saying that the, re that the way that Hezbollah was looked upon after that yeah, was— Yeah, I mean, I think for, for, for a moment there that Hezbollah gained a lot of attention— uh, I mean, the Middle Eastern press initially reported that war as a victory for Hezbollah. Uh, that changed over time. It's not just the Middle Eastern press. I think mm -hmm. it was also reported that way in many corners of the West. Mm -hmm. uh, as it became more apparent that it was actually a fairly devastating uh, defeat for Hezbollah, that that changed, and Nasrallah himself even admitted it was not the best of maneuvers on his part. But uh, for a time there, uh, you know, they they did recapture the limelight. Uh, as Tony said, I think that those days are long gone um, because of the enormous slaughter of Syrian Sunnis uh, at the hands of Iran and its allies in Syria. I was going to raise this later, but I'm going to raise it now because you brought it up. So 2006 was the last war between Hezbollah and Israel. Uh, after that war, Hezbollah was supposed to, under UN resolutions, etc., to take their weapons out of southern Lebanon, and the UN was supposed to enforce that, and it was supposed to be not demilitarized. So just the opposite has happened. Hezbollah has imported probably as many as 150,000 missiles, trying to bring precision missiles in. They probably have some. Um, they're all pointing at Israel. The Israelis see this as a, as a serious threat, especially with the Iranians trying to set up another front in Syria as well, where Hezbollah has fought uh, for the government of uh, Bashar al-Assad. Um, so while the, the, the protests are going on in the street about public services, about lack of opportunity, unemployment, all of that, what you don't have, I don't think, is them saying, and Hezbollah is endangering us because if they start another war with Israel because Iran has ordered it or because of miscalculation, Lebanon will be devastated, not just south of the Latani River like last time, but the entire country. Israel will not be able to say we're only fighting Hezbollah, the Lebanese are our friends or we're neutral. They're going to have, because Hezbollah is so powerful, so spread out, its weapons are, this will be a war all out between Israel and with 150,000 missiles, the Israelis will have little choice from a military strategic position other than to essentially say we have to destroy them with massive weapons from the air as quickly as possible. We can't 
surgically remove them. Are people not aware of this, Tony, or are they aware of it, but they dare not speak about that aspect of it? What's this? Because this is the th- this is a threat existential to Lebanon. Uh, yes, I, I mean, are they aware of it? Yes, they're aware of it. I think they are. Uh, the 2006 war was sort of the first taste of uh, a different type of warfare between Israel and Hezbollah, one which was not just simply confined to the rural areas of southern Lebanon where the rest of the country can go on with its daily life, no problem. Uh, it affected life in the country more broadly and and people's properties on a much bigger scale. Now they understand that that's going to probably even be a much larger scale still this time around. The pro- the thing is that the 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 you were correct to note that the protests today are not about that per se. They're not exactly about Hezbollah's strategic position mm-hmm. in the region and its military role in the region. It's understood that that is the source of its power, and that's kind of as one element of the pathology in Lebanon. But it's not really an, an area where people are focusing, probably because that would actually lead to more division than, than uh, unity. At, uh, yeah. So the unifying factor has been sort of to, to include Hezbollah or even to zero in on Hezbollah as the leader of this overall system of corruption. Uh, and that this system with Hezbollah at its head is really the source of people's misery because it has failed them on a, on the most basic level. And by the way, this is a very important point I want to make sure we emphasize. In the past, the conflicts that have convulsed Lebanon have been, as we pointed out, one sect against another. What seems to be happening this time, which is different, different and I've heard Lebanese Americans and others talk about this often with great optimism, is that the sects are coming together. They're not waving the flags of their sects or Correct. parties, but the Lebanese flag. They're acting like they're, 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 there's u- unity in the nation of Lebanon, Correct. and they are going after the quislings, if you will, in their own communities, Correct. Shia against Shia, Christian against Christian, and saying, you have betrayed us, all of us. And that that, unif- that that's giving a lot of people, not everybody, right. a great deal of hope. Yeah, I mean— I- it, I have to acknowledge that it is it is new, and I have to acknowledge that it's been so far very resilient despite the sectarian leaders' various attempts to use all kinds of old tricks of intimidation and co-optation and, and sectarian in, incitement and so on and so forth, and they failed. So if this continues, it, it, I have to acknowledge that it's new. Uh, where it leads, however, is anyone's guess, because there are still so many obstacles that uh, they need to, to they need to overcome, and they're going to eventually hit against a wall of this century-old sectarian system that is going, and then how then, when that collision happens full on, head-on, how things then evolve from that point is anyone's guess. I mean, you have, I mean, you have the intersection of the problem that mafias usually don't, uh, you know, nurture um, antibodies. That is, they don't. They, you don't have young members of your mafia that uh, want to break from the club. So you've got a problem mm-hmm. of trying to find uh, new blood that isn't corrupted by the system. That in and of itself is 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 difficult. Right. Uh, you. Also, do have an issue that if I mean the only way this can go is towards a more democratic system. Correct. Uh, 
And if it goes in that direction, uh, what the Christians and the Sunni Muslims and the Druze will essentially be saying is we trust the Shia enough to have a more open system. That is going to prove an interesting mm. question. Uh, because of their numbers, right? Because, right? because of their numbers. They will they will not necessarily predominate, but they're certainly going to be the most important player uh, in uh, Lebanon in any type of real democratic system. Now, this assumes that you can get rid of Hezbollah and all the exactly. rest, and that's, that's a huge assumption. <laughs> well, Hezbollah because, is not walking away. Well, they're not, they're not going down without, a, without a, a serious fight. The only possible exception to that is if uh, Hezbollah internally is weaker than what many people believe. Mm. Uh, and I, don't ha I have no idea whether there are fractures within Hezbollah itself that would prevent Hezbollah from engaging in the type of brutality that is going to be required uh, to put this thing down. Economically, they're under some strain. I think we can see that Hezbollah is. They, were, they have been getting great sums of money from the Islamic Republic of Iran that was helped by the previous administration, which was giving great sums of money to the Islamic Republic of Iran and promising additional commerce under the JCPOA that would enrich Iran even more so that it would have more money to do that. That's said to be one of the reasons why Hezbollah has increased its criminal activities globally, not least with the narco-traficantes of, of, of Latin America. Um, but the law is pretty diversified. In terms of its, uh, its yeah, finances? I mean, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm... I'm skeptical that those that the fractures are going to be sufficient. Okay. The economic fractures are going to be su sufficient to to crack its hold. I, I'm I'm deeply skeptical, right. and they've gone through a, a lot in the past, and they have very developed okay. networks abroad in a variety of ways. And I think we don't want to overstate the capacity for sanctions okay. to. Um, really uh, drop them to their knees. But there, it's, it's, this is a good opportunity to explain part of the problem of the economic problem in Lebanon now. See, yeah. I mean, if, if you want to summarize it, it's basically the government spends way more than it can bring in, okay? Uh, the Lebanese banks have exposed themselves to this risk because they are financing the debt of the government. Uh, it used to be okay because it used to be they used to be able to attract foreign uh, currency and foreign direct deposits and, and investments and, and so on. But that has dried up in large part because of the fact that Hezbollah is the dominant force in the country and that the United States and the, and the uh, Arab states have imposed sanctions on it. So I know the Lebanese talk about you know, how the remittances of the diaspora were important to bring in, were a source of foreign currency into the country. But that wasn't just the, the only source of the country. It was Hezbollah's criminal activities that were also uh, a source of income. Once you've put the squeeze on the Lebanese banks and, uh, and, the, and the Arabs put the squeeze on the diaspora working in the Gulf Arab states, then the ability to start bringing in that cash and launder it through the system for these banks to have the money and the foreign currency, that started to dry up. So there is a relationship. It's in large part mismanagement and corruption and the public sector being incredibly bloated, but also it's because of the inability anymore 
even of Hezbollah's criminal activity to launder its its uh, proceeds through the Lebanese banks. So briefly on this, but I think it's an important question, but I want to get onto some other things in the time we have. The, what you've been hearing as the solution is that technocrats be brought in. Yeah. That sounds, uh, on first blush, wonderful idea. Yeah. After a little thought in what you're saying, maybe not the idea of bringing in a bunch of accountants and CFOs. That's not going to clean up the and, the, and right. correct the situation you just described. Right. I mean, because, you know, you still have the elephant in the room, right, of the actual political yeah. powers. Now, what this, what, what is, uh, what concerns me about, you know, whether we agree that somehow a technocratic government, should it ever see the light, is the solution for Lebanon, is that we then delude ourselves into saying, okay, this is good enough. Now we can inject some money into the system. And, but the thing is, this, we need to understand that this, that's why Hezbollah is defending the system as a whole, because the system itself reinforces its position in, in the country. Okay. I mean, technocrat is just code yeah. word. For? <laughs> it's a code word for someone not of the established political classes. It's code word for reformist. It's code word for, you know, all those things which are more convulsive if you say them openly. And the powers that be, most of all, Hezbollah is not going to really give much power to a technocrat of this. Well, not just, described. yeah, I mean, Hezbollah, not just and, uh, Hezbollah. Not just, but all, of them, yeah. all of them, All of them, exactly. all of them are not totally right. cracked up about that. So, Tony, what is American foreign policy now? And separate from that, two questions. What should be American foreign policy towards Lebanon in your right. view? So in the, over the last three years, the, the Trump administration has ramped up its uh, pressure uh, on in, in sanctions, economic pressure on, on Hezbollah as well. Uh, and, and so uh, that contributed to the, to the dynamics I just, I just laid out. But at the same time, it was still wedded, and it is to this day still wedded, to this idea of that, that, that the Lebanese state can be salvaged and that somehow we can pick and choose elements within the system and that somehow if we do that, it would isolate Hezbollah and weaken it in the long run. So I think what ironically what these protests show and in their rejection of that entire system and Hezbollah's defense of that entire system should give the United States pause about the assumptions underlying this policy. If Hezbollah is saying, I want this system, this system is good for me, mm. propping up that system should not be the United States policy. So that's, that's on the basic level. Um, pumping money into a system of corruption and where all the elites of the political class are in cahoots one way or another in, in business, business-wise, I mean, with, with Hezbollah. Of course, they serve politically at its pleasure. That also shouldn't be our, our uh, policy. Now, to, to the administration's credit, they have uh, said no bailout for Beirut. No bailout for Beirut. If they hold that line, regardless of technocratic this or new government that, should that ever materialize anyway, that would be the right move because you need to let this moment take its course and to let this pr uh, pressure that's coming up from the street against the entire political class, Hezbollah included, it's seeing something that it's never seen before. That should be allowed to take its course. Do you want to comment on that, Ruel? Do you agree? Do you disagree? Do you? Uh, you know, I'm, uh, I'm probably 60% in agreement, 40% not, in the sense that... Uh, I, I do think that you have to be very, uh, very careful that if your enemy is, in fact, uh, telling you that the established system works for me, then you 
probably don't want to strengthen that established system. Where I'm a bit skeptical is that um, uh, what we are essentially gambling on is that through impoverishment, we will have insurrection. Hmm. I don't know historically whether that works. That's, by the way, also a basis for the the strategy in Iran and Iraq, is it well, See, I don't think their policy, that's that's not how I would look at the Iran policy. I don't think that's going right. to work. I would argue that the Iran policy, the sanctions of a value because you are simply denying them hard currency. Mm-hmm. Which they used in, for nefarious right. purposes. So you, that's, Why the, give it That is an okay. unalloyed good that yeah. you are, yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that's you are denying them hard right. currency. I don't think that American sanctions are going to produce an insurrection inside of the Islamic Republic. And in Lebanon? Uh, Lebanon, I, you know, I, you know, all of this is theoretical, and I think one one has to hope the demonstrations continue. Uh, I mean, I think eventually the Hezbollah either have to crack, assuming the demonstrations continue, or uh, they start mowing people down. The U.S. support, uh, there's been U.S. sanctions and U.S. pressure on the economy in Lebanon, and U.S. support for the Lebanese armed forces has continued. The rationale for that is that that can be, that that's the only institution in Lebanese society that can stand up to Hezbollah. Tony, I think you've written that that would be nice, but that's not the way it's working. The Lebanese armed forces are becoming sort of the National Guard and Reserve of the of, of Hezbollah. Is that am I exaggerating? No, no. I mean, I think I think during the Syrian war they played an auxiliary uh, part, uh, a role to Hezbollah. So they helped it protect its flank and its logistics and so on and so forth. So I think that's I think that's self evident. But um, uh, I think the United States is thinking, well. If this place ever blows up, we would like something to pick up the pieces, uh, and maybe they might be even playing, you know, some form of politics because the last three uh, Lebanese uh, presidents have been former commanders of the army, mm-hmm. so they might have, uh, you know, uh, illusions about maybe fostering a mm-hmm. future candidate. For, I think it's small ball, and I think a lot of it is more kind of hope. And maybe, and we'll see, and this kind of thing more than more than an actual concrete set of objectives and policies. I mean, I think there is some hope uh, on the horizon, and that there does appear to be. Uh, uh, I don't know if I'd go so far as to say a regional Shiite rebellion against Iran. That might be pushing hmm. it a bit far, hmm. but there's certainly increasing dissonance. Uh, amongst Arab Shia uh, vis-a-vis the Islamic Republic. Uh, That's a very good thing. Uh, In Lebanon, obviously, the only way this works in the end is that the Shia themselves have to crack the grip of Hezbollah in their own community. Uh, If they can't do that, then this goes on. If they can do that, uh, then we've got a different ball game. How you do that? Can you do that before the Islamic Republic falls, the regime, the clerical regime? I don't know. Uh, it may be that the only way you can engineer this is that the clerical regime in, in Tehran has to go down. And after that, then things become possible in Lebanon, as in Iraq and other places. Uh, if that's the case, then obviously we have a very, very hard, difficult situation. All right. My last question, I haven't left much time for this question. I don't think it takes much time to answer this question. The role of Europe 
particularly France, which for years, decades, cared a great deal about Lebanon, saw Lebanon as really vitally important to it. Is, is, are the Europeans doing anything useful? Can they do anything useful? Well, the French are sending someone to start to urge the Lebanese to form a government oh, quickly, well, blah, 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 a, and so on. But, not but a brilliant what, maneuver. There. No, but what, what, they, what the Europeans have, this fr- led by the French, have done is to, is to promise last year at a conference for support for Lebanon to, pro- to pledge uh, about $11 billion in, uh, in grants and uh, loans, uh, more, more loans than grants to the Lebanese if they do uh, X amount of structural reforms that they needed to do. The Lebanese political class, ha- you know, was not anywhere near ready to do any of that. Uh, I think right now they're going to, they're striving to just put together anything to tell the Europeans, hey, look, we have a, a, re- a new government of technocrats and we're going to implement reforms, pay us. Because that's the bottom line. They want people to bail them out. You will find a passport français. You know, I, 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 France is part of the status quo. Right? So if the status quo in Lebanon is rotten, then by definition, French foreign policy towards Lebanon is rotten. So uh, the French need to rethink the way they approach Lebanon. Uh, I, I doubt they will. It's a complex situation. It's fascinating. My crystal ball is cloudy, so we'll just have to come back and talk about this again in a month or so. Until then, thank you, Tony Bedran. Thank you, Royal Mark Erect. And thanks to all of you for being here and listening to this conversation with us on Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. If we could be doing better, tell us. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpolicy at fdd.org. You can also tweet us at Foreign Policy on Twitter. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.